0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Let me read for you from Numbers chapter 25, beginning there at verse 11. It says, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and for his descendants after him, a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of the father's household among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Now, it actually was in last week's portion, and we're really dealing with kind of the aftermath of what's taken place. So let's kind of back up for a little bit. What happened? Well, there was this... Prophet. His name was Balaam. And Balaam was hired by one of the enemies of Israel, Balak, a Moabite king, and he hired Balaam to come and to curse Israel. And it was last week's portion. We didn't have a chance to really teach it then, but if you read that portion, or if you're familiar with the story of Balaam, well, you know that Balaam came and he was not able to pronounce a curse upon Israel. Instead, he pronounced a blessing, and Balak got all upset. You know, I hired you to come and pronounce a curse, but you've instead blessed them. And in fact, the blessing that he speaks, how goodly are your tents, O Jacob. And to this day, in a Jewish synagogue service every Shabbat, in where there's traditional liturgy, they say the words of Balaam as a blessing over Israel. For 3,000 years, we've been quoting Balaam in blessing Israel in the synagogue service. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, the words of Balaam. But Balaam wasn't a good prophet. We are taught that there was a great error in his way. He was a prophet for fee. Now, he, when he would open his mouth, the word of God would come forth and he would speak. He was a real prophet. But he had the wrong motives. And while God did speak through him, he wanted the money. You know, there's not a prophet who begins with the intent to be a false prophet. I don't know if you know that or not. Nobody gets up and says, you know, I think my goal in life is to be a false prophet. And I think I'll do that. No, instead, they all start off with the right motives and the right intentions. For whatever reason, they feel that they should be doing that. They, have, they want to do good with God. And, and we don't know all of the things, but how it all works. But every guy comes before God to be his servant, and some are chosen to be prophets. Balaam apparently was. We don't know the details of how he was, but he was. And he was recognized throughout all of the land. He was recognized by Balak. Balak paid a premium price to get him. But he shifted from just serving God to he was interested in some money. And he decided to exploit his position with God to trade it in for some money. He decided to enrich himself. And in the course of that, he put himself in conflict with what God was doing with Israel. Now, when he came and he pronounced the blessing over him, Balak got angry with him. He said, man, I hired you to come and do harm to him. He said, oh, wait a minute. If it's harm that you want to done to him, you don't need me to prophesy. I know how you can harm them. Well, how? How do we harm them? Make them like you guys. Make them like the nation. See, they're separate. They're apart. They're different. Their behavior is different. They have a lineage. You know, it's completely different. Their behavior is different. If you're really going to hurt them, you've got to take away their distinctiveness, the way, the part that sets them apart. You've got to make them like everybody else. So here's how you do it. Send your daughters over to marry their sons. They marry in. they got to honor both sets of parents. we got conflict, and that's how you kind of you blend them in, and that way they won't fight you, their family, They're in-laws. You know, you can't fight in-laws. And then you know that in the ancient custom of the kings in those days, in monarchies, if you really wanted to form a permanent alliance, you had to do one of two things. You know, either you had to have a common enemy that was threatening both of you. So you could go to the next neighbor, and you could say, Look, we've got a common enemy. We've got to deal with this. Let's get together. And there was a reason to do so. Or you had to send the daughter of your the king's house over to marry his son, or vice versa. And that way, when you become in-laws, then you won't fight each other. Because if you can control the king's house, you can control the nation. This is a pretty simple thing. And in the same way, it says that the counsel that's given from Balaam to Balak, the Moabites, is to do essentially that. Send your daughters over to marry their sons. Get them involved with you. I once heard a car salesman explain to me the wisdom of how you sell a car. And in fact, uh, I I really liked his expression. I said, Well, how how do you particularly sell cars? And he says, Oh, you got to get them involved with the car. I said, What do you mean? He says, They got to get them in the car. They got to drive the car. Got to turn the air conditioner on. Got to turn the stereo on. They got to get involved with the car. That's how you sell a car. Well, that's what Balaam was saying to Balak. Hey, you know, you wanna you wanna get Israel to come your way, you gotta get them involved with you. Gotta form a bond of some sort through family, through marriage, whatever. Those are the things that'll do it. Great idea. Balaam didn't stop there. He told the Midianites the same thing. And we don't have all the details given here. So let me. Let me offer some explanation as to the things I'm getting ready to explain to you. It seems that at the height of this issue that a particular uh, son of Israel, they start getting hooked up with these daughters of Moab and the Midianites. And uh, it seems that one of them, in particular, who's listed here, a guy, his name is Zimri. He's a son of the, he's a prince of the Simeonites. Simeon was one of the tribes. He's a prince of them. He's one of the leaders of the tribe. He hooked up with this Midianite woman. And something happened in which that Phineas, in the presence of other people, got so angry so quick over this deal that he picked up a spear. Now get with this. Picks up this spear, rushes into the tent of Zimri, and impales Zimri with this spear, and also impales his wife with the same spear with the same thrust. Sticks, you know, makes the first Jewish shish kebab. And, shock of shocks... God says, this is a good thing. And it writes here in this first portion of the Scripture, it says, God hands out one of the biggest compliments that has ever been put one of the individual sons of Israel that's ever recorded in Scripture. And says, I'm going to make a covenant with that guy, the covenant of peace, it's going to last forever. His name is going to be immortalized forever for what he has done this good thing he has done now let me see let me back up here for a moment let's see phineas judge of israel no did we have a proper trial according to the torah no did we present the evidence here and did we bring all the witnesses in that they were deserving of death No, I don't remember that trial. I don't remember the witnesses. And furthermore, where does it say in the Torah you to execute summary justice by using a spear? I believe it was stoning, wasn't it? So he even chooses a different method of death. And yet, having broken about 15 Torah commandments, Phinehas is applauded from heaven. And the rest of Israel is stunned. Now, at face value, there's insufficient scripture to really be kind of reconciled to this. Occasionally, you have heard me when I teach various Torah portions, say, well, this is my favorite Torah portion. This is, you know, that one's my favorite Torah portion. I, I say it too many times, and it's kind of a joke. But let me tell you about this particular Torah portion. This is one of the strangest Torah portions there is in scripture. Because things don't happen the way you think they ought to happen. Who gave Phineas the right to make a summary judgment with regard to Zimri and to unilaterally, even without Moses' consideration, go and execute the man in his own tent? What is this grievous thing that he did? And that is what brings us to the part that I'm now about to share with you. There are, is kind of a background teaching that goes with this portion. And I and I put quotes around it, background, because it's not in the scripture. It's part of the traditional teaching and the understanding and trying to understand what is going on here. And I can tell you right now, I'm going to share it with you, and I still don't think it quite makes sense in terms of how is Phineas justified in what he does. But let me walk you through it. According to the traditional teaching, the daughters of Moab and the Midianites came down and began to intermingle with the tribes of Israel. They were camped there near Baal of Peor. And we know that Baal is one of the Canaanite gods. And and so making sure that we're all on the same page of music, what does Baal mean in the Hebrew? Husband. And this God, this Canaanite God, was stealing the glory of the God of Israel and proclaiming that he was the husband of Israel. Well, Let me explain to you just how offensive, you know, that is to God. Um, If we were to take one of the couples here in our assembly, married couple, and another person were to come walking into our assembly, and you were to be standing there and seeing that couple standing there, and you saw this stranger come walking in and kind of cozy up to the couple, and the next thing you know... He is putting his arm around the wife of the man in our assembly and whispers into her ear, Tonight, I'm going to be your husband. Just how upset do you think that husband would be, the real husband? Just how upsetting do you think it would be in our assembly for such an activity to go on? I dare say that if the true husband were to suddenly reach over and grab the stranger by his throat and just about wring his head clean off of him, we would probably stand back and say, righteous and true are his judgments concerning that fellow. <laughs> and I submit to you that that analogy is like unto the God of Israel, who has brought Israel now to the brink of getting ready to cross over the promised land. He's going to If you will, carry him across the threshold. And this Canaanite God comes along and he says, I'm going to be your husband. Baal. I'm going to be Baal, your husband to you. Now, I can't think of anything more offensive to God. I can't think of anything more offensive to the real husband of this situation. And it doesn't make any difference whether the bride finds the guy attractive, or he's got a nice aftershave on, or what, it doesn't make any difference. This isn't going to happen. And effectively, that's what happened. Israel is there. They're camped. They're getting ready to cross over. And here comes these ladies. Now, these ladies are from the other nations. They're not like, they don't, you know keep themselves chaste and so forth. They're here to lure these men into these relationships. Specifically, they want to intermingle. They've been told to go do so. And they, in their nations and in their practices, they know a lot of interesting ways to get the sons of Israel's attention. And they come in full force. They set up their tents. They begin to have a festival and a feast. They invite them in. Next thing you know, and this is the understanding, we got a full-blown orgy going on. This has gone completely beyond uh, international relations. I mean, they're getting it on under the trees and the grass and the bushes and the tents. They're even being open about it. And, of course, Israel had been told that their behavior shall not be like the nations, that when it comes to sexual relations and things, there are right and proper things for this. These are things of family and life. These are not things of recreation and debauchery. You just don't go and do this like an animal. But the nations are coming in. They want to do this. They want to lower Israel, make them like them. Well, it turns out that if you're really going to have a, an effective movement to do this, if the Moabites are going to be successful, you can't just just kind of openly do this. You've got to be a little bit selective. You've got to get some of the leaders of Israel involved in this. Get them to go along with it. You've got to get to the leaders, the princes And so one of the leading tribes of the Midianites dispatched a princess. And they targeted one of the princes of Israel, a man named Zimri, prince of Simeon. And he was a bold fellow. He was assertive. And he got involved with this woman. And he chose her and he wanted her. And when this thing began to kind of grow up and it became a major issue there and Moses is speaking against it and the people are saying, let us not do that and let's be separate and, and so forth. Here comes Zimri. According to the tradition, he came in before all of Israel, proclaimed his testimony. There's nothing wrong with them. And I've chosen her. And in effect, by so doing so, he was saying, I don't choose God anymore. I don't choose Moses' instruction anymore. I choose to do what I want to do. And thus, with one of the leaders saying this, this is like a greater rebellion than Korah. You know, Korah wanted to just attack the leadership and take issue with him. He wanted to make himself a leader. Now, now Zimri is suggesting The rest of you go out and get your own wives. Go ahead and do what you want to do. And according to the traditional teaching, he made this incredible speech before all of Israel in defiance of Moses, in defiance of some of the other princes. And he chose this woman, Cosby, and made a big deal out of it, made it public. And then he pronounced, to show in defiance of it, I'm going to take my wife, my new wife, I'm going in my tent, I'm consummating the marriage right now before all of Israel. That's when Phineas didn't hesitate. Didn't need any counsel to decide what to do. Grabbed a spear from a guard chased him right in the tent, and as he was getting ready to get on his wife, impaled both of them. And then God said, because Phineas was jealous with my jealousy, he preserved the children of Israel, because he was in the process of dumping a plague on Israel and was going to wipe the whole group out. And in the course of him doing it, only 24,000 sons of Israel lost their lives. We think those 24,000 had hooked up with the Moabite and Midianite women. That's how pervasive this issue had become. It wasn't a one or two kind of thing. It was a lot of them had gotten involved. It was just that Zimri had brought the thing to a public spectacle and brought it before all of the people and literally was in their face throwing it in their face it says at that moment it says that Phineas had acted with a jealousy now some call it righteous indignation we know God himself describes that he is a jealous God the same kind of jealousy that would exist with a husband his wife. See, jealousy is that emotion that springs up in you when something that really does belong to you has been taken away or has been misappropriated. It really does belong to you. It's yours. And you know that the traditional teaching of marriage is that the woman, the wife, becomes and belongs to her husband. Her life and her body belong to him. They're his now. And if they are misappropriated, or if they're stolen or taken, that he has the right, it is a godly characteristic, to be jealous for her. That which belongs to him has been mistaken. And that's the whole issue about the teaching of Baal. He has misappropriated what belongs to God. therefore, God is jealous, and therefore it says that Phineas, the way he acted and the way he ended this matter very quickly, he was acting with a righteous indignation, with the jealousy of God. and because he was in that jealousy of God, it says, he didn't break any commandments. He didn't break any commandments. It says, God says instead, what he did was right. Now, if that be so, and I believe it is, then I think there's two things that come from Phineas's example to us. It explains to me why the Messiah is not going to give them another chance. It explains to me why the Messiah doesn't have to follow the rules of Torah when it comes to judgment upon the heathen and those that would come to kill Israel and his bride, you know the trick of the enemy. The great trick of the enemy is to either kill the bride of the Messiah or prostitute her so that even he doesn't want her. In both cases, you can understand he being the husband, he being the bridegroom, should be acting with great jealousy. And if he's acting by great jealousy, the example of jealousy given here by Phineas, there's no need for a trial. This is summary judgment. We're not going to hear witnesses. You're just going to get whacked. It's going to happen that fast. And the truth of the matter is, it is one of the Torah considerations. In law. It's called summary judgment. We don't need to hear any witnesses on this one. You know, you may have heard the ex- ex- explanation. It's cut and dry. This one's cut and dry. Summary judgment. And God has the right to execute summary judgment upon his enemies. The example is given by Phineas. That's the reason why Phineas is not wrong in his behavior here. Because he's exhibiting the very heart of God concerning these matters. But this is difficult. This is hard to... I mean, what are the rules? How do we... How many of you want to live in a community with a couple of Phineases? think about that for a moment. How many of you want to live in a community that Phineas sees you misbehaving clearly sees that you're misbehaving and you get nailed and what are the rules? I mean, you know, how do you tell a guy who wants to, uh, let me get that spear and I'll go and pale them people I'm under the spirit of Phineas here what's the rules on that one? That's the disturbing part. That's the part where we who are men... I think Moses struggled with this a little bit. See, what's the rules on this one? You know, there's always an exception to the rules, and Phineas is the exception to due process. And God somehow says it's right. So that alone, if there weren't other portions in this Torah portion, that alone is enough controversy to cause a debate to go on for several thousand years amongst Torah teachers, of which that's what's been happening. For a couple of thousand years, Torah teachers have been trying to figure this one out, because there's, you know, how do we apply these rules? In fact, I have done some reading where various Torah teachers said, well, um, I mean, really, you got to be moved inside. I mean, the Spirit of God's literally got to come up on you. Well, how do we know when that happens? I mean, that guy knows it, but how do the rest of us know it? And how do we know if it's not some guy who says, hey, well, as I said, the Spirit of God came home. I mean, how do we know when it's real? In any case, whatever the answer is, and I'm not sure I know the principles and the rules correctly, and I certainly have not found the evidence where it is clearly stated by other teachers as to how they would understand it. But the fact remains, it did happen. It did happen. And the fact remains that God did bless him and say he's done a good thing. And God himself stood in the gap and said, don't come against Phineas. Don't speak ill of him. You will not take additional legal action against him. He's done what I wanted done. Probably the second point, the more disturbing point is, is that if that's really the path that we're supposed to be following, the Spirit of God comes up on us and we just do some rather interesting things. Think about that for a moment. Think about a person who has a call of ministry. What are we to do with them? when they say they want to do strange and different things. And they seem to be things that are in conflict. The New Testament gives us an example of Paul when he was coming back from his last missionary journey and how the there were several the prophets who would prophesied and said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go there. They, they'll arrest you. They hate you there. They arrest you. You'll find yourself going before Caesar and being executed. Of course, Paul... He had prayed to God, and God said, I'm going to send you before Caesar, and I'm going to have you testify before Caesar. And Paul's saying, good, maybe the Lord will do it by way of the enemy actually arresting me and giving me free transportation. Now, to the rest of the brethren, that looks out of kilter. How can it be God's will if you're being arrested and you're being summarily sent off to be executed? And as you know, in the story of Paul, that when it looked like that he was been arrested, but he was going to get off, then he appealed to Caesar. He could have had the case settled right there in Israel with Felix the governor, but he appealed to Caesar. He made him do it. I, I thought the idea was to live. I didn't know the idea was to purposely, intentionally get myself arrested so I can get killed. You see that that conflict there? Somehow it's God's plans, what God's doing and wants to do. And yet, in our way of our understanding, we've got God figured out. Remember, we know the Torah. We know all the rules. We've got God figured out. And God turns around and does something different. And he says basically, if God did it, then it's true. Hmm. That's interesting. For those of us who teach the Torah and like everything explained and make logical sense, everything to be clearly laid out, God's here's the rules, okay, let's play the game by the rules. And then all of a sudden there's this exception. It's a little bit disturbing, quite honestly. You know, to it. And it's part of that controversy that begins to make its way through the rest of this Torah portion. And I want to introduce a little bit more to you about it. In chapter twenty-six begins the second census. In the book of Numbers, as I taught the first portion, the reason we call it the Book of Numbers is because they numbered the sons of Israel with the first census as they had come out. Of Egypt, and they had built the tabernacle. Now this is toward the end of the forty years, and now we're going to number the sons of Israel again. and there's a slight difference in the numbers, but they're basically the same. it's a, it's a group of over six hundred thousand. And if you recall, the difference between the two census is that the ones that they took the census of, they died in the wilderness. Now this is the census of the new leaders. Why is this census having to be taken? Because this is the, they call this the census of inheritance. The first time was to number the, the armies of Israel. This time they take a census for the purpose of inheritance. Because as they cross over into the land, these are the ones who will be counted. And when they cast the lots at Shiloh for the separating of the land of Israel and handing out to the various tribes, these are the ones who are going to receive the parcels of land within the land of Israel. I want you to take note of the fact that in this census, that as it calls it out, and we just, two portions before we had the, the story of Korah. You remember Korah, the guy that was swallowed alive? In chapter 26 and verse 11, it says, In this census, the sons of Korah, however, did not die. So who is it that went down into the grave with Korah? The 250 princes. Korah and his 250 princes, they went down into the earth and were swallowed alive. But the sons of Korah were spared. The reason why that takes uh, note, of, and I want you to take note of it, is here's how God works things. I mean, Korah, the example of rebellion, guess what his sons become this example of? They become a guild who write and sing some of the greatest psalms that we have in the temple worship. In fact, if you go into the book of Psalms, for example, you'll find Psalms 42, 44, 46, 47, 48, 49, 84, right up there at the top in your Bible, it says the sons of Korah, that the very sons of Korah go on to make some of the temple Psalms and some of the most beautiful Psalms of worshiping God that we have in the Bible, Now that's, you talk about a little controversy, you talk about a little contrast there. You thought that deal with Phineas was kind of interesting. Here we got the sons of Korah go on to lead worship before God and lead all of Israel in the worship of God. But Korah himself was the guy who led the rebellion, who God himself swallowed up whole in the earth. You see the contrast it's interesting how God would sort that out. The father dies this unbelievable death. His sons go on to lead worship in the temple. After the census has been taken, we come to another issue. Chapter 27. Let me read for you there are a few verses. Then the daughters of Zelophiad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Makur, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. Come near, and these are the names of the daughters, Malah, Noah, Haglah, and Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders of all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. And Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. You shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Now, that's an interesting thing. Up to this point, it's been totally paternal. By that I mean from father to son. Leadership is from father to son. That's the inheritance. That's the rule of inheritance. But what about the case where we have the father who didn't have the son, but he does have daughters. He has family. He has descendants. How how do they receive their proper inheritance? And they're getting over, go over to the land to receive the inheritance. And the Lord says, even though their father has passed on, still his covering. His authority over them is still binding. And therefore, let the daughters receive the inheritance. It's a real interesting exception I bring out in the Torah because quite frequently, most most people who study the Bible as a whole and the issue over gender bias, when it comes up, they tend to say, well... You know, if the guy believes in the Bible, well, then he's obviously anti-female. You know, and God really is anti-female. I mean, the feminists will tell you that. We ought to be changing instead of his story, it ought to be her story. Get the point? Her story instead of history. And they say that this whole gender bias thing, this is one of the evidences how God is not true or righteous. But the fact of the matter is, he was true. He was righteous. But I want you to take note, ladies, in what manner and by what authority did they come to claim that which was theirs, rightfully theirs. They did not abandon the authority of their father. They exercised within it. And I think that that's one of the clues to understand the issues of what is the right and proper ways for ladies to operate within ministry, to operate within the congregation. If you recall, there in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul makes that rather interesting statement, he says, But concerning women speaking in the churches, I say to it that a woman should not speak in the church. She should keep silent. She should go home, ask her husband, and do exactly as according to the law. Well, what exactly does the law say according to the law? What does the law say? It says a woman can speak. If she stays within the authority of her husband or her father. But if she tries to get out from under that authority, and she tries to exert her own authority, she's no different than any other Man who's out from under the authority of God or out from under the authority of his father's household. He's on his own, and it doesn't carry the day. The fact of the matter is, we all answer to somebody. We're all under authority. We are. And to not be in and under that authority, under that covering, is to be wrong and to make mistakes. It's true of men as well as women. As long as they're under the proper authority, sure they can speak, but they're speaking under that authority. Just like the law says. The same thing goes into the very next portion. In the very next portion, Matot, we will learn next week, the teaching of vows. And it says specifically in that teaching that if a woman speaks, she makes a declaration. I make a vow. I'm going to do such and such. Just because she makes a vow to God doesn't mean she's not, out, you know, that she's out of the authority of her husband. And the day that her husband hears this vow or declaration that he's made, he has to make a decision: either it's going to stand before God, or I will annul it to protect her. If he annuls it in the day that he that he hears it, she's done no wrong. God will not hold her accountable for it. But if he allows it to pass in the day that he hears it, then God will require it of her. But there's a protection set up. There's a system of authority that is established. This is not a strange thing within the Scriptures. Everyone must answer to authority, whether it be the king or whether it be the priest or whoever's duties or whichever authority it is over whatever area. The Bible tells us we should be in authority to those who have authority for example if you get in your car and you go down the street and you get stopped by the policeman the torah says you are to make yourself subject to that authority just because the guy is not a believer just because he's not of israel just because he doesn't read his bible when he goes home at night doesn't mean that you don't get to you're just not supposed to put yourself under his authority he's there to serve he is an officer of the court We want to live in a country that has laws. We don't want to live in a country that doesn't have laws. Believe me, it's not safe. We all are under authority and at differing times. Nobody gets to be autonomous except God, of course. He's above all authorities. And so if the wife immediately is taking her position and showing herself out of the authority of her husband, out of the authority of he is under elders, out of the authority of elders, she's going to be in conflict with a whole bunch of people. And that's what Paul was trying to emphasize. He was trying to emphasize with brethren not to misspeak. Ladies, don't misspeak. And in this particular case, these women present themselves before Moses equal to princes of Israel. And they receive their proper inheritance. But they do so remaining under authority of their father's house. So just like everyone else, just like the other princes are. Not different, not separate, but appropriate and correct so that no offense comes up before any at all. This is another controversy, very difficult, comes out of this portion. Now we come to the end of chapter 27, and we have a very interesting passage in which that Moses makes a final request of his life. Beginning at verse 12, let me read for you. Now we come to the end of chapter 27, and we have a very interesting passage in which that Moses makes a final request of his life. Beginning at verse 12, let me read for you. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up to this mountain of Avarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. And when you have seen it, you too shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before the eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah and Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Here's the interesting dilemma. And this is the way it's characterized. Did Moses want this job? You recall the story. You know how Moses got called? Moses was out there tending sheep in Midian. Went up on the mountain. Had a little conversation with God. God says, hey, I'm going to deliver the children of Israel. I'm going to send you Moses. Moses says, hey, don't send me. I'm not really qualified. Is that I can't speak very well and so forth. You remember all that conversation? It's seven times Moses tried to get out of the job. And yet God persisted to call him and to establish him. And yet he leads the people out and it comes time to cross over the promised land. And for one sin, God won't let him in. What's the deal here? Now, this is how they compare the story they compare the story to a marriage that there was a certain man and he saw a young maiden and he was smitten in the heart and he loved this maiden and he pursued her and he went to her and says marry me and she denied him and he persisted and he was romantic and he sent her flowers and he approached her again and again and again and she kept saying no, 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 no finally she agrees to marry him It's some years later now. And the man sees another woman whom his heart is smitten for. And so he says to this wife of these many years whom he pursued, here is my bill of divorcement. You're divorced. And then she says... Seven times you pursued me and I didn't want you. But now you only come once to say goodbye. Where's the balance in that? Where's the balance? Where's the balance in God saying to Moses, no, because of one time you didn't honor me correctly, you don't get to go to the promised land. If there was any guy in the assembly who wanted to go to the promised land more than any of the others, name him above Moses. Name him. This is the guy who's been carrying the burden of the whole people. This is the one who went to the people and said, I'm going to take you to the promised land. The land flowing full of milk and honey. And he's the one who argued with the people and said, turn your hearts to obey the Lord and go in and take the land. Yet he is denied. What is Who is this God that makes these decisions? That has these standards of righteousness that says this is right and that's not right there. These are perplexing questions. I can tell you within Israel within the sages of israel these questions in this particular torah portion are the one that taunt their souls i guess god really is god i guess we're not going to put god in a box he is going to still be above us in all things he will decide and prove again and again to us he's god we're men. The servant, you know, has no recourse against the master. Oh, maybe the servant will come and plead with the master and his plead his case to say, well, it would be better to do it this way, master. But it's always couched in terms of what would be best for the master, not best for the servant. There's a difference between being master and servant. There's a difference between being God and man. And there's a certain protocol that it doesn't make any difference whether you're Moses or not. You don't cross that line. Years ago, when I was in the business world, there was one particular book that came out. I've mentioned it before to some of my friends i just was enthralled with this little book it was a small book and it was about it was a book on about management and when i was a manager in corporate america i was kind of a typical manager i guess i you know liked to read and study books that was about my trade and my skills so i could be a better manager from people who had great experience and this one particular author had written a book Called It was entitled, The Leadership Techniques of Attila the Hun. The word management was never used in the book, but it was a beautiful book about management. And in the book, the thesis of the book, he presents the world as being three types of people. There's the Hun, okay? There's warriors, and then there's chieftains. And in the business world, that's pretty much the way things break down. There's all the people that work, the laborers. There are your superstar laborers. There's those guys who are your middle managers and guys that can really lead and get projects done, program managers and so forth. They're warriors. And then there is a class of managers at the executive level, and they're called chieftains. And there's a whole series of axioms and parallels and truisms that the author of the book writes about these different positions. And there's a couple of them that I just really got my attention, I could immediately see the principle in action. I could immediately see how this could be applied in the world. It was true with regard to some of these things. Like, for example, uh, one of the counsels to chieftains was that chieftains should always be willing to listen to a difference of opinion, be open to a difference of opinion. But if it's an issue of disloyalty, shoot him on the spot. That's what Phineas did. That was what Phineas did. It wasn't a difference of opinion. It was disloyalty against God. It was to bring death to all of Israel. And Phineas took this guy's counsel. This little management book took this guy's counsel. And when he saw that it wasn't just a difference of opinion... It was disloyalty to the living God. He killed him on the spot. Israel learned a great lesson. In the business world, it's what can turn a major problem around very quickly. There were a couple of other things I liked about that book. It said that um, um, chieftains should never be concerned about rubbing elbows with the warriors but warriors should be scared to death to rub elbows with chieftains because chieftains can kill you right now chieftains can end your career i don't care how great a champion warrior you think you are they can bring your career to an end right now and there is a protocol of authorities. And one that's taught in that is learn those protocols. Learn who's under authority, by what authority it is done, and don't cross and don't challenge those authorities. Work with them. And in this particular case, in the case of uh, Moses and his relationship with God concerning the land of Israel, Moses clearly is a chieftain. There's different rules for chieftains than there is for warriors. Moses uh, will die alone on the mountain. This is a guy who's leading uh, three million people. You would have thought the guy would have been surrounded by people. You know, he's all the things he's done all of his life, he's been ministering for 40 years to these people. You would have thought they would have gathered around his great bed and they would have all been there at the moment that his spirit goes away and said, no, he goes up on the mountain alone. He dies alone. One of the rules about people who have special calls is it's a little bit like climbing a mountain when you begin to serve God. God's up there in the heavens. God is up there at the top of the mountain. And when you go up the mountain, let me tell you, every step you take, the ground around you becomes less. When you're down at the bottom of the mountain, everybody's there. Everybody's with you. We got lots of companionship, lots of friends, lots of peer group, and so you start moving up on this mountain, and the ground becomes less, and your peer group becomes less and less and less until you get to the top, and the only one there is you and God. You would have thought it was the other way around, wouldn't you? That the service of God, instantly, you know, would be bringing you into the favor of the companionship of many brethren the truth of the matter is if you begin this path to climb the mountain to serve the Lord don't expect people to come along with you don't expect there to be a great number that continue to join themselves to you the closer you get to God the further you are away from the world And the world has all the people. And each one of them have to make a decision like you. Do I want to be part of the world with all the other folks or do I want to be in God's presence where there's not so many? It's a decision that you make with every step that you take up that mountain. And by the way, when you're walking up that mountain, you look up there, you know what you see? Nothing. The scenery looking up the mountain is terrible. It's only when you turn around and you look back and say, oh, the scenery is beautiful. If you're going the other way, the scenery looks. But if you're going up the mountain toward God, there's not much scenery to entertain you on the way. And it gets more and more lonely every day. And if you rise to the stature of a Moses, you die alone in the presence of God. It's a kind of an interesting dynamic. That's a little perplexing about this portion. Maybe one of the things also that could be said that's a little bit perplexing with regard to this portion is is that the sages of Israel say that at the moment that Moses said... And he was looking for the people and he said, Lord, I have one last request. Verse 16, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Who did he have in mind? It wasn't Joshua. It was his son. Why has he been doing all this work? The minister to the congregation of the family. Doesn't he have a family? Hasn't he been working all this time so that he could preserve his own children and do well to them? Did he just decide to ignore them? No, he didn't. But again, God is doing his purposes. In his heart, he was humbled before God, and he was willing to let God choose the man. It's from this little passage that there's an interesting axiom, a little interesting thing that's said, and it is, a, it is true. I have committed my life to the study of Scripture and to carrying it out. But you know what? For all the good things I have intended for my son and my daughter, I can't give him that inheritance. They have to make their own decision. To serve God. I mean, I can teach them, I can structure them, I can raise them up and so forth, but I can't, I don't get to give them the inheritance that I've gained from my knowledge of the Scripture and from my relationship with the Torah. I don't get to give it to them. It's not an automatic that if I serve God, my son gets to serve him and ride upon the heels of my service. He must go himself before God and serve the Lord. Each of us come to serve the Lord. That little thing we hear sometimes in Christianity today well, I grew up in a Christian home. Don't count for squat before the living God. Same thing is true of my own brethren. Well, I'm a Jew. Okay, well, that proves that you're a systematic unbeliever. But I'm talking about your relationship with God. Do you know the Lord? It's not an automatic that that great spiritual inheritance is passed from father to son. Each one must come before God. Joshua, why did he receive the honor? Why was he called? Because he served Moses the whole time. He was called the servant of Moses. He served him in his tent. He helped to carry out the instructions and all the messages that Moses would give. It wasn't Moses' son who was doing it, it was Joshua. He, Joshua, had come and he had served the Lord. Not because he was the son of Moses or any other, he had made the decision I will serve the Lord, and later that will be his testimony. In the book of Joshua, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Every man has to make that decision. You don't, a father doesn't get to pass the inheritance down to his son. I think that's part of the reason in the tradition that the talit is never given as an inheritance from a father to a son. If you're going to have a talit before the Lord, you're going to have to go get yours from the Lord yourself. You don't get it from your father. And each man, each Jewish man, each son of Israel who has his tallit is to bear the tallit back before the Messiah himself. There's certain things that we get to pass on as an inheritance, but the service to God, each one must come and decide to serve the Lord themselves. The uh, the last part of this, and I want to make mention of it just very quickly before we leave, is what they call the law of offerings. It's a parallel passage a little bit to what Leviticus chapter 23 is. Le- Leviticus chapter 23, for those of you, I'm sure you recall this, it's a listing of God's appointed times, and it lists the holidays, God's holidays. It begins with Passover and explains Passover and the Feast of First Fruits and Feast of Unleavened Bread and Shavuot and the Feast of Weeks, and then it goes over and then it explains Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the Feast of Tabernacles and Sabbath and the New Moon and so forth. And this does the same thing, only this time it gives the specific set of sacrifices that is to be done at each of those holidays. Within regard to temple service and worship, How many sacrifices are to be presented? Now, for those of us here, as a messianic congregation, one of the things that marks us and that is a basis of unity and fellowship amongst us and is what distinguishes us from, say, other fellowships and churches and so forth is this issue over God's appointed times. We, uh, coming here tonight, we lit Sabbath candles. We recognize this is the last day of the week. This is one of God's building blocks of his appointed times, the weekly Sabbath. I mentioned before about the Kiddush cup and that we use that to also designate the holidays. And if we were going to have Rosh Hashanah, we would say the blessing of the cup or one of the other. The only one we don't do is Yom Kippur because we fast that day. So we don't have a cup. And we teach here in this congregation. And and the reason why Messianic congregations have a Friday night service, it's really a way to bring people in and gently teach them how they too can make this to be the tradition, the custom of their home, that Sabbath is really a commandment of the home. It's not a commandment about assembling. I mean, you can assemble, but it's not a commandment about assembling. It's a commandment about resting. And we teach. And some within the messianic movement and, you know, they would look at the Torah and say, we're Torah observant. We we keep the commandments. That's our testimony. We, we believe in Yeshua, the Messiah, and we keep his commandments. You know what? I was telling you about this passage. It's got a lot of controversy in it. This is the passage that indicts us and says we're not doing it. There's a listing of a holiday that's in here we just gloss over all the time. As a messianic, we don't keep it. Within the Jewish community, they don't keep it. In fact, I dare say if I went looking over the horizon over the world, I don't find anybody keeping it correctly. It's an event called Rosh Hodesh, the head of the month. It says on the head of the month, you'll treat it like a Sabbath. You'll cease from your labors. You'll come and you'll worship me. And not only will you recognize that I'm the God who created the whole week, you'll be recognizing me. I'm the God who creates the the months of the year. Now we keep Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. We keep the weekly one, we keep the yearly one, but we don't do the monthly one. It's in there. You know what? I have a confession to make to you. I'm not sure I know how to do it. I've done a little praying about it. I've had some discussions with some people. I've weighed it, considered it. But I have a confession to make. If God were to hold me up and say, Monty, are you observing Rosho Dash correctly? I'd have to say, no, Lord, I'm not. I'm not sure I even understand it. Talk about your basic controversies. You see, the fact of the matter is, you know, we say in life that there's always an exception. Well, this is the passage I call where there's a lot of exceptions here. I'm not sure that I fully understand. After many years of teaching the Torah, I'm not sure I yet fully understand all the commandments. Nor how to teach them properly, I'm not yet sure that I really understand this God who complimented Phineas. For had we seen it, had we seen this act, we would have been shocked. And even recounting the event, it, we've struggled to understand how can that be right? Interesting questions, huh? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, for being a light to us in the midst of great darkness. Thank you, Lord, for your wisdom, the depth of your wisdom. And we confess to you, Lord, your thoughts are way above our thoughts. Your plans are far greater than any of our plans. And Lord, we come to you and humble our hearts before you and we have no idea why you even choose us. I have no idea, Lord, why you continue to love us and persevere and want to remain with us and tolerate us and put up with us and forgive us. So Lord, rather than dwelling on that and trying to figure that all out, we're just going to start walking in that faith and we'll just walk before you. And we'll just be your children we'll just be your servants and we'll be glad that we get to be there and we'll say thank you lord for being our god and for choosing us for looking down on upon us with kindness and lord we would ask that you would continue to pour out your spirit upon us that you would cause us oh god to be more like you not like the world but like you. We don't even know how to take the steps to do that, Lord, but we'll trust that you'll, you'll work that out too. Lord, I pray for every family in this congregation. I lift them up before you, oh God. And I ask, Lord, that you would look down upon them and upon their houses and upon their children and their children's children, upon their extended family, and that you would, Lord, pour out a blessing. That you'd use the families that are here be a testimony and a witness to many of your goodness, of your being gracious, of your compassion, and Lord, that you would do good to my brethren. Not Lord for our sake, but for your great name's sake, that many would see. Lord we don't have a testimony before nations we have a testimony before neighbors we don't have a testimony before kings but we have a testimony before workers and workmates and other citizens and other family members and god i would ask that you would use us you know to have a testimony of you before them to encourage them to draw them, to work in concert with your Holy Spirit, to draw all men to yourself so that you might be reconciled to the world. Lord, I would ask that like you did with Phineas, that you'd pour out peace upon us. You'd give us peace so that our relationships would be right and correct before you that we would obey those commandments to love one another, care and nurture for one another, and you give us peace in our own homes so that this congregation, which is called the Sons of Peace, the Children of Peace, that would truly be our testimony. And let it begin first at our own homes and carry from this assembly into our neighborhoods and into our community. Lord, I thank you for the life and the testimony of Phineas. I don't quite know how to apply it, but I do know this, Lord. I like the fact that you chose Phineas, and you blessed him, and you put within his heart the things of your heart, and that's what we would ask, Lord, too. We want your heart in our heart. Thank you Lord for the Sabbath, thank you for our fellowship here. And we thank you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. For more information about Line and Land Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720968 Norman, Oklahoma 73070. Our web address is www. LionLamb.net Thank you.